Hello and welcome to How Many Geese. I'm Jack Baddams. And I'm Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a nature podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously... Then we are the natural selection. On today's show... Who submitted this? This was Sarah. Sarah, I need you to have a good long look at yourself. <laughs> if you'd stuck microphones in front of these two guys back in 1980, it would probably have sounded something very similar to the episodes <laughs> of How Many Geese. You know, I think a stoat is appearing on my TV being like, no case is too big. Yeah. <laughs> I can get you off the hook. Yeah. <laughs> okay, have you heard of the Man versus Horse Marathon? <laughs> I didn't have any other way of starting that other than just coming straight out with it. I have not. And as much as I am about to assume this is running, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I want it to be like like an eating competition. Like there's some (laughs) dude going toe-to-toe with a horse and a bale of hay. (laughs) I'm afraid it's running. Uh, Okay. Now, we're going to need to head to the Welsh town of... Jesus Christ. Clanwerted? L-L-A-N-W-R-T-Y-D. Clanwerted. I don't know. Clanwerted Wells is where it is. Okay. It's in a Welsh town. I'm going to guess you've said it wrong. I have. We did, a, we, did, we did an episode last season, I think it was last season, where I had to pronounce the name of a Swedish village. Yep. I'd just like to say, for the Swedish people that did get in touch, it's much appreciated. <laughs> Thank you very much. Welsh people, you know where to find me. Drop yeah. me a line. So we're in a Welsh town. It's 1980, and local pub landlord Gordon Green has overheard a discussion between two men in his pub. One man was claiming that over a significant distance across country, man was equal to any horse, whilst the other disagreed. Now, I just want to say, if you'd stuck microphones in front of these two guys back in 1980, it would probably have sounded something very similar to the episodes of How Many Geese that we record. I like these guys. Yeah, and Gordon, the landlord, in his infinite brilliance, then decided that this shouldn't just be a theorized discussion this should be something that they actually test so he decided that it should be tested and organized a public event to see who the winner would be gordon's a businessman so he sees a gap in the market he's like yeah let's get a yeah i'll have a horse racer dude so the race route was decided 22 miles over rougher country terrain than your normal marathon and it was set horse rider versus a man who would win the horse won. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, the horse won. Uh, any ideas what the time different was? If I tell you that the runner, a guy called Dick Evans, ran it in two hours ten, what do you think the horse did it in? Dick Evans? D- who? Was he just a guy from the town? He No, I think he was like, uh, he was a fell runner or a marathon okay. runner or something like that. No, he's not, they're, they're not literally not just picked one of the guys out well, of the pub. Like, I was going to say, they've only just broken the two-hour marathon, <laughs> like in the last two years. Yeah, and no. it was, you know, the Kenyan guy. And just, I thought this Dick Evans in some Welsh town in the 80s just downed his pint. Smashed out two hours down <laughs> yeah. cross country. That's what I thought. Um, he did it in two hours ten. How long did a horse take to do 22 miles? Yeah. 22 miles, country terrain. Um, I'm trying to maths this because I think the Grand National is four miles. And the, if there's yeah. any way that you can maths this, I'll be incredibly impressed. Right. If the Grand National is six miles, which I don't know if it is, but... <laughs> 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 if, if 
the Grand National is six miles, which I don't know if it is. What did you get at maths at school, Rod? <laughs> and they do it in five minutes, which I don't know if they do. Then a horse will do 22 miles in 15, 17 minutes, 17 and a half minutes. 17 and a half minutes? Uh, no, Dick did it in two hours 10. The horse did it in one hour 27. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you were a little bit off. That'd be, actually, to be fair, that would be a horse maintaining a speed of close to 50 miles an hour. <laughs> so I probably could have factored that in. And I think they do, you know, for the welfare of the horse and stuff, there is stops, there, depending on the temperature and things like that, you know, it's not... It's I like that Gordon put this on and was like, Dick, you're going flat out. That horse is getting brakes, just so you know. <laughs> Anyway, the mockery of having the horse have brakes. <laughs> so, roundly beaten, the horse is the victor. Yeah. Okay. By about 40 minutes. The following year, they did it again. Mm-hmm. So, this now, from this point, from its inception, becomes an annual event the man versus horse marathon in this Welsh town. Yeah. The following year, the horse beat Dick Evans again. Dick Evans has come back for a second go, but. This time... How did Dick Evans think he was going to shave an hour <laughs> off it? How long did the horse do? The horse did it in an hour 27. Dick did it in two hours 10 in the first year. So Dick thought he was going to shave off 45 minutes off his marathon time in a year. Well, he did shave off 20 minutes because the horse only finished 22 minutes before Dick. So did he slow down the horse or did he speed up himself? Not sure. He must have slowed down the horse, because if he's shaved 22 minutes off his time, then he did a marathon in an hour and 48 yeah, or something. Yeah, that's true. So, which is... so the horse was slower. Yeah, yeah okay. it was a slower horse. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, in the problem when comparing these times as we go through the years is that the course is changing. The course changes as we go through the years, and in 1982, they changed the course a little bit to try and make it a bit fairer. Because they were like, the horse is absolutely pasting Dick Evans. But we still want to test whether over the 22 miles in length, it can be done. So the course changed. It's still 22 miles long, but there were some terrain changes. What, like an escalator? (laughs) Where they thought, like a rope ladder. Well, I'm trying to think, yeah, what would a horse be tearing, like an inflatable section or something? (laughs) Like the big red balls on Total Wipeout. Yeah, yeah. Takeshi's Castle. (laughs) (laughs) So they changed the course a little bit to try and see if they could make it a bit more fairer. But it's still worth remembering, it's 22 miles in length, cross-country marathon. 1982, third annual race happened. The horse won again, but only by four minutes this time. Okay. And it's also worth remembering that there's not just, certainly as it gets later down the line, it's not just one horse versus one runner. Multiple horse riders and multiple runners start taking part in the marathon. And it becomes like a thing that you can join, basically. Is each runner paired with a horse? No. Oh. No. You will see <laughs> later on that the, the numbers of runners outweigh, uh, outmatch the number of horses. Okay. So in 1984, there's another one, horse one. In 1985, they allowed to compete on bikes if they wanted for the very first time. There's now no just longer the horse and the runner. There's now cyclists in there as well. And the US ladies champion cyclist, Jackie Phelan, took part and narrowly lost to the first horse on this thing. Uh, The horse monopoly continued until 1989 when British cyclist Tim Gold beat the first horse by three minutes, becoming the first human to win. Right. Can I 
just come in here is gordon still running the show as promoter i believe so gordon is the greatest sports promoter of our time do you know who like don king is <laughs> yeah like the boxing, the boxing guy, guy who yeah. the simpsons kind of parody and all the rest and put on all these great <laughs> boxing fights of our, you know gordon has kept the man versus horse marathon going like how is he getting dick back how who, how are these, these people are getting pasted by the 10 years yeah. horses have been at the top of the tree gordon's yeah. like all right cycle if you want fuck yeah i don't care <laughs> like he's kept them coming back for more it is extraordinary how is he he why isn't he in the annals of sporting history you know no idea like the guy you know the, the kind of guy who managed the do you see that Michael Jordan documentary of like the greatest basketball team? You know when the Chicago, this whole like Chicago basketball team who beat everyone and blah blah blah. Yeah. There's the guy who ran that. Yeah. Don King, <laughs> Gordon. Gordon Green. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the cyclist becomes the first human to win, beating the horse by three minutes to the finish line uh, in 1989. So nine years after the uh, first race, but thankfully. The cyclists are seen as a little bit of a sideshow and they don't really count for the main competition, which is man versus horse. Still going back to that original pub argument, can a man outrun a horse over 22 miles? Um, So although they let cyclists compete, and I did just want to mention the cyclist element, it's not really listed as an official victory on the man versus horse marathon. Okay, okay. And another thing to mention is that there is a prize for this race. So a Sunday roast at Gordon's, <laughs> <laughs> like two for one steak on a Wednesday. <laughs> now this prize grows by a thousand pounds each year that a runner fails to beat the horse. So it can only be claimed by the runner that eventually goes on to beat the horse. Honestly, Gordon is a genius. He's the greatest entrepreneurial mind of our time. <laughs> Twenty-four years pass with the horses just dominating the field. 24 years since the inception, a quarter of a century of men continually stepping up to the plate and just being beaten by horses. Can I, that is such a male, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll beat a horse. <laughs> anyway, enter. We're now in 2004. Hugh Lobb. Smoke machine, <laughs> yeah. Walking through Hugh Lob, like a, a wrestling entrance, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know. exactly. Can you smell <laughs> what Hugh Lob <laughs> is cooking? This was the biggest race they'd ever done. Five hundred runners versus forty horses entered the two thousand and four race. Hugh Lob finished in two hours. 5 minutes and 19 seconds beating the horse by just over 2 minutes to take home a prize of 25,000 pounds and Hugh became the first person the first runner in the history of the race to beat the horse goose salute to mm. Hugh Lobb in 2007 so we're only 3 years later now two men beat the horses so we've got the winner german guy called florian holginger holginger finished 11 minutes before the first horse 
to take over a £3,000 prize. Now, imagine if you beat the horse by 11 minutes, absolutely crushed it, but only three years before someone had taken over the £25,000 prize, so now you've only got £3,000 to take home. That's a bit of a kick in the teeth. Yeah. I really don't understand, though. Like, humans run 22 miles. Yep. And from day one, it was like, obviously, horses win. Uh Uh-huh. Clean. Mm -hmm. So they've just spent 24 years working out how to slow down a horse. (laughs) (laughs) Is that the... Is that the crux of it? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, Is it over... But what... Surely you're doing it for, like, a sense of pride, but you're doing it knowing that there's been 24 years of research put into it to work out how to make the winner lose. I think, basically, (laughs) what had happened is they changed it a bit in the early years. Yeah. And then it started, so I think from whatever, 19, whatever it was, 1980-something, the runners started finishing within 10, 5 minutes of the first horse. And that's enough for people to be like, I want to be the first person to beat the horse. So the two, it's going over the same terrain. Yeah, so it's going over it's going over the same terrain, yeah. Uh, oh. I thought that the humans were just running a 22-mile flat and they were sending the horse up a hill. No. So there is there oh, is Oh, that's so, okay. So they do take slightly different routes, but over which under what circumstances yeah. does a human begin to beat a horse? Yes. Right. So, yeah. So it's basically, so they take slightly different routes to accommodate for the horses and, you know, whatever. Yeah. But there are parts of the track where they're they're on the same one. Yeah. And it's just cross country, across Wales, they set off, who's going to win? The penny's dropped. I've finally kind of got it. Comparable routes, yes. who's quickest at doing this type of terrain? Is yeah. it a human or a horse? Yeah. I just kind of had it in my head the humans were sort of going around the town or whatever. No, and no, no. they were like... Right, the horse obviously wins, so where do we have to send a horse until <laughs> no, it loses? No, no, no. <laughs> right. it's like it's basically like fell running. Okay. Um yeah, cross country, gotcha. all that sort of stuff. Gotcha. Um so in uh two thousand and four, Hugh became the first person to do it. Two thousand and seven, two men um beat the horse, the first one by eleven minutes. Um so that by this point, like team horse must be you know, down down in the dumps. They've had a couple of very close defeats. They uh, had two decades at the top, you know. <laughs> exactly, yeah. When you come down, you come down hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, they rallied again, maintained their grip on the competition for a further 18 years, the horses. Team horse. So team horse going strong until this year. Oh. Now, this is where I came across the story. This is where this is the first time I'd ever heard of the man versus horse race. Uh, and I saw a news article in the summer this year there were a thousand runners and 50 horses but step forward race winner as far as i can tell his real name ricky lightfoot <laughs> ricky lightfoot the s- nominative determinism <laughs> wins again nominative determinism's ricky lightfoot is a 37 year old firefighter from cumbria who landed at 4 a.m in the morning on the day of the race from a holiday he'd been on in tenerife yeah, <laughs> he drove from Manchester, where he landed, to the location in Wales for the start of the race at eleven. Ran the race in two hours twenty-two minutes, and then drove back home to have a shift at seven thirty the following morning as a fireman. Come off it, Ricky! <laughs> Ricky just shows up, absolutely smashes the horses, and then just goes back. Um, 
Is he on like a stag do in Tenerife as well the week yeah, before? That's like what I like to think. Off the back of an absolute five day bender, you know. <laughs> I'm sure it's probably some sort of family holiday, but in my head, he's definitely just got. He's just he's Googled it. Like, he got the on night the wrong before. flight. <laughs> yeah. You know, he wasn't even. <laughs> So, well done to Mr. Lightfoot, and uh, the man versus horse race is will take place again next year, but there have only been four people that have beaten the horses, but two of them on the same year, so actually only sort of three winners over the, God knows how long it's been going now, but this happens every single year. What time of year? Uh, it happens in, I think it's June time, it's summer. Pencil it in. <laughs> Geese on tour. So I, I thought, though, that I would use this as an opportunity to talk about how it's actually possible, like how it's actually possible that a human can outrun a horse in any way whatsoever. Like, it just seems the most mm-hmm. bonkers thing. And we think that humans, you know, you th- we think about humans and you take away our intelligence and you think we're one of the most poorly adapted, like we've got no fur, we've got no claws, our teeth are a bit shit. Like, there's just nothing. Like, there's nothing that we're good at. The only thing we're good at is we're smart and we can make things. Yeah. But there is one thing that we're actually really good at, Mm. and that's endurance running. Yeah. Like, as well as our intelligence, nothing else on the planet can run as well as humans for as long as humans. It's... I, I mean, there's probably something out there that I'm forgetting about, but it's insane how good human endurance running is what's our secret weapon sweating sweat and a bum yeah yeah a lot of it comes down to glorious sweat yep because we've got four million sweat glands all over our body and having very little hair means that we we can basically run burn all that energy and sweat it off at the same time so things like horses do sweat but a lot less effectively and overheat much faster. Whereas things like wolves, big cats, things like that, they have to pant to cool themselves down, which is a lot less efficient. It's nowhere near as good as being able to sweat. Apparently, the tendons in our legs are also particularly well evolved to helping us run more efficiently. There was lots of science about various tendons and how they use the kinetic energy on the upswing of our leg and convert it into stuff when we're taking off. I don't want to go into that, but apparently our tendons are like 15 to 20 percent more effective than a chimpanzee's uh, uh, tendons or something like that we've basically evolved in a way that our ancestors would have hunted prey over really long distances and there's this as far as i'm aware there's this one tribe called the sand tribe of the kalahari in africa who are or were the last tribe on earth to use this method of hunting the last record i could find that they were definitely still doing it was 2014 but that seems to be as far as i can see before covid everyone's had to change (laughs) they're doing it remotely now (laughs) everyone got a bit fatter over (laughs) lockdown now i'm sure you've seen this there's a brilliant bbc earth clip that was filmed for the attenborough program life of mammals documenting this hunt and it is it's really special. Like I watched it and I've got sort of a little breakdown of it here. Um, but it's really, I don't know, it's really quite something to watch. And there's basically these hunters going out tracking kudu, the big antelope animal that lives in Africa, uh, in the middle of the day. It's like the midday sun and they're tracking these animals. They spook a group of kudu. They separate off the big male 
with the theory being that it's carrying big antlers, it's a lot heavier, they can probably wear it out faster. Mm. So they track this male kudu, and for the most of the time, they're not really running these three hunters, but they're using, you know, their insane tracking skills and doing the classic, like looking at broken twigs and all that sort of stuff. It goes out of sight. But what they're doing is constantly not letting it rest. It wants to sit under the trees. It's under, you know, the really hot heat. Uh, they're constantly just flushing it all the time. Just harass it to death. Yeah, they basically mm. just harass it. And then as the hours go on, one runner is chosen to be the person who chases it down. Mm. And the actual running part of the chase can also take hours. And it's just like this guy running under the heat of the African sun and this kudu just getting more and more tired and he's getting closer, he's getting closer. Eventually it gets so tired and overheated that it collapses in exhaustion just right in front of him. Like it's an amazing bit of footage. The guy's just stood there and this kudu just collapses in front of him. And Attenborough gives it the old, now the spear is little more than a symbolic gesture. <laughs> and he on, Dave. stabs it, you know, kills it. And then he does this like, you know, really nice sort of ritual about returning it to the yeah. earth and respecting the prey and all that amazing stuff, you know. Um, the whole hunt itself lasts eight hours and it's just like, it, it's up there with some of the most impressive things that animals do when you watch this clip. But is it more e- efficient? It seems <laughs> seems long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, why, why wouldn't they just bow and arrow it? This is a like this is such an ancient hunting method that the yeah. idea is this is probably what we did before bow and arrows. Right. Yeah. So I don't know why they've not got bow and arrows, yeah. but then you could ask nowadays why don't they have guns? Yeah. But yeah, before bow and arrows we would have just been able to chase animals down until they collapsed of exhaustion and we were just able to keep going and it's all because of sweat. So even, yeah, I think it's like cool that biologically, I mean, I say we, like, you know, we're sat in this podcast studio (laughs) having just had quite a heavy lunch. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so I wanted to segue from that incredible tale of human evolution and ancient tradition and all this amazing, you know, thing of the sand tribe to another tale of human versus animal contest. We're going to head to Huntington Beach, California yep. to meet Dominic Minaldi, who is about is about as, this character, this man is about as far as you can get from this sort of close to nature, born of the earth tribesman that we've just met in Africa. Was he going to have a poker tournament with a cockatoo or something. <laughs> Dominic Minaldi. I found a YouTube video of this guy, yeah. right? That was broken down into chapters, which I think give you an idea of the chaos surrounding this man. Okay. okay. The first chapter was entitled Castle House, because he lives in a house that looks like a castle where he throws parties at Halloween with over 5,000 people, and it's all, like, done up to this be this Halloween spectacular. So we've got one chapter that is the castle house. Yep. Another chapter in this YouTube video is called Bodyguarding Gorbachev. <laughs> because this man <laughs> was named three-time world's greatest bodyguard of the year and as well as bodyguarding Gorbachev, has also bodyguarded George Bush Sr., Barbara Streisand and Robert De Niro. How, 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 how? I'm waiting so hard for the bit where this weaves in to the horses in Wales. <laughs> so, he's a pretty good bodyguard. He's won this thing three times. Part of the reason he's so good 
is uh, standing six foot one, weighing two hundred and ninety-one pounds, and being a centaur, <laughs> he's got <laughs> he's got years worth of experience of Greco-Roman wrestling and street fighting, which leads us on to our final chapter that was in this video: bear wrestling. <laughs> This is another example of man versus animal competition. Yeah. Because, of course, this guy, Dominic, knew another guy called Randy Miller who had a wild animal refuge in inverted commas. Oh, yeah. I'm talking, I think, probably Joe Exotic style yeah. refuge. In the video that I watched, it was claimed that Randy Miller single-handedly brought back the white tiger from extinction would just like to point out yep. the white tiger is absolutely not a species it's a genetic mutation in tiger populations and selectively breeding white tigers together to create more white tigers often ends in all sorts of genetic defects yeah cheers randy but randy was accredited in this video of uh, of saving the white tiger anyway he had a bear <laughs> he had a bear called dakota which is a Kodiak brown bear, which is a subspecies of the North American brown bear. And basically, it's the biggest subspecies. It's like similar in size to a polar bear. Well, brown bears are also grizzly. It's the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the same species. And the Kodiak is the biggest of all of them. Yeah. It's, it's the one that you get up in Alaska. Yeah. Um, and allegedly, the bear liked wrestling when it was playing with its owner. So Dominic thought it would be a great idea to have an actual proper wrestling match with it on December 1999. How... The did, bear? did he did he get Gordon in to do the promotion? <laughs> he should have. There should have really been some sort. <laughs> no, no, there is no man better equipped to run that sporting event than Gordon Green from Mid Wales. Yeah. <laughs> um, the bear was eight hundred and one pounds and stood at nine foot tall. Before the fight, the owner had to feed it 60 pounds of chicken, 20 pounds of dog food, and 20 pounds of cookies so it wouldn't eat Dominic. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, he has, he has a fight in a ring surrounded by people, and like it wasn't, it wasn't a close fight at all. Dominic left the ring with several cuts and bruises. Dakota became bored after a few, uh, after a few minutes and went back to its cage without a scratch. But how, 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 what, like, how, you know, because there's obviously, and, and then the other thing, like, how, what, <laughs> how, like, there's a bear, yeah. there's a bear and a man. Yeah. What was his plan? <laughs> you, so you, when you watch the video of it, it doesn't really explain it in the documentary. <laughs> like, how, how, how do you win? Like, that's what I wanted to know. You have to pin it. But it's ba he's basically full-on, like, Greco-Roman wrestling, like, sort of ground and pound with this bear, where he's, like, trying to pin it down. And the bear's obviously, you know, the bear looks like it's just sort of thinking this is quite fun. And it's just, like, rolling over and just, like, <laughs> get this man off me. As someone who, if I may describe myself as such, as someone who has put considerable time into considering how to fight various animals. <laughs> I'm going to say that Dominic did no preparation <laughs> no, and had no, nothing even close to an adequate battle plan here. <laughs> he did get absolutely smashed by the bear. If Gordon had been involved, you can bet your life this would have been a yearly occurrence. Oh. <laughs> even though there's no hope of the human winning, Gordon will have 
done some sort of promotional wizardry so that people are coming back time and time again. It'd be, he'd look at his books, he'd work out where the low season was, it'd be six <laughs> months after the horse event possibly, so he's getting two per calendar year, so it keeps ticking over. He's got a secretary working on the, P- he's got, like, man, Gordon runs a slick sport promotion <laughs> machine. He wouldn't have let Dominic versus the Bear pass him by if he knew about it. <laughs> Now, we're going to go from Dominic to my last example of um, human versus animal. Yep. And this is something that I saw completely separately, but I really wanted to weave it in because I think it's just an excellent story. We're going to France in the year 1400. So, okay, Gordon's not around for this one. And Perhaps... <laughs> Gordon. He's maybe been there since yeah. the beginning of time. Yeah, Monsieur Vert, Gordon's great, great, great <laughs> grandparent. So it's France, 1400, and Chevalier Macquer has killed Aubrey de Montidier in the forest of Bondy near Paris. Okay? Yep. Now, Chevalier figures that he's going to get away with this scot free because. The only witness to the crime was Aubrey's greyhound. Right? So, out in the forest, Chevalier has killed Aubrey. Yep. The only thing to witness this crime was Aubrey's greyhound. Yep. After the gruesome deed was done and Chevalier had buried the body, the dog went back to town to a friend of his now dead master. Yep. uh, And led the friend to the spot where he'd been buried and whined and poured at the ground, and the body was recovered and reburied, and the greyhound moved in with the friend. But they didn't really know, you know, it was obvious that he'd been killed, but they didn't know who had done it. Not long after his murder, the dog came into contact with Chevalier. So the guy that had killed his master, they're in the town, Chevalier the murderer is walking down, and the greyhound comes into contact with him again and attacks him viciously. And three men reportedly had to pull the greyhound off. The dog was usually known to be a gentle and amiable sort, but it kept on flying at Chevalier whenever it saw him. This began to draw suspicion from the dog's new owner and others, and eventually it was brought to the king. Now, I like how everything back in the day seemed to just be able to be, like, brought in front of the king. Like, there's so many examples of, like, this person stole some of my carrots let's bring it in front of the king and the king shall decide there were a lot fewer people back then <laughs> yeah, you know, like. exactly yeah it's <laughs> carrot like... crime was was big business so they brought this situation of this greyhound attacking chevalier over and over again to the king his royal highness came to the conclusion that the behavior of the dog was actually an accusation of murder and arranged very insightful from his royal highness to <laughs> and arranged for a single combat trial a duel between man and dog to decide if the man was guilty do you have which king this was the, no what, the, no whichever what it was in the 1400s uh, probably several <laughs> <laughs> um so the dog with its actions of continually attacking this man when it's normally been a very nice placid dog, um, is now being seen as accusing this man of being the murderer of his now dead master. Uh, the legal system was simpler back then, wasn't it? <laughs> this dog is pissed at you. Who'd you kill? 
The fight took place on the Ile de France in Paris, and Chevalier was armed with a lance, while the Greyhound came to fight Bare Knuckle with nothing but its teeth. <laughs> Bare Knuckle. The dog sprang upon the man with amazing ferocity and clamped its teeth around his throat and couldn't be shaken off. Chevalier screamed that he'd confess if they'd pull off the dog. As far as the trial by combat was concerned, it was an open and shut case and Chevalier was sentenced to hang for his crime. <laughs> and that, unless you have any further comment, is where my animal versus human <laughs> exploration ends. I'm popping up to let you know that this week's episode has been sponsored. We've been sponsored by Trees for Cities. Trees for Cities is the UK's only charity working at a national and international level to improve the lives of people by planting trees in cities. This summer, those of us living in the UK, but I also imagine pretty much anywhere in the world you could be listening to, was incredibly, incredibly dry. And trees do a great job of helping to cool down cities. Not only have Trees for Cities sponsored us, but... I'm also letting you know that from the 29th of November to the 6th of December, Teresa Cities will be taking part in the Big Give campaign. The Big Give is a charity giving campaign in the run up to Christmas. And what it means is that any donation you make to Trees for Cities as part of this campaign will be doubled. You give them £10, they get £20. You give them £20, they get £40. You give them £10,000, they get £20,000. And if you have £10,000 also maybe buy us a coffee but we are very thankful to Teresa Cities for sponsoring us giving us a little bit of a boost do go and give them a donation in the run-up to Christmas like I said with the big give campaign it will get doubled and it will help get more trees in urban places not just in the UK but all around the world those trees will help with providing shade help with urban flooding urban heat island effects wildlife habitats the list of what trees do goes on and on and on and on so Trees are absolutely fantastic. Most of us live in cities. Let's get some more trees planted in cities. www.treesforcities.org forward slash big hyphen give. The campaign runs from the 29th of November to the 6th of December and any donation will be doubled. If you can hear a noise, that's a lift going up next to me. So I'm going to leave now. Thank you. Bye. All right, it's time for that part of the show where we take one of nature's magnificent creatures and we pit it against Roddy Shaw in a fight to the death. Now, today's animal has been submitted by Sarah on Instagram and it is the elephant seal. Oh, Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to know our foe. There are two species of elephant seal, the northern and southern, with the smaller northern species being found along the west coast of North America. But we're going for the big daddy of the elephant seals. Of course we are. <laughs> we're going for the southern elephant seal that inhabits the southern oceans, the tip of South America and islands like South Georgia in the subantarctic regions. Uh, called elephant seals because of the male's large nose, not only are they the largest member of the seal family, they're also the largest living members of the whole family of carnivores. Great. 
which I had not appreciated that they fall into the same family. But they're the largest living member of the carnivore family. Bulls can weigh up to four tons, although the record bull was estimated to weigh more than five tons and was 6.85 meters long. They're twice as heavy as a male walrus and six to seven times heavier than the largest living terrestrial carnivore, the polar bear. They're six to seven times a polar bear. Six to seven times heavier than a polar bear. Who submitted this? This was Sarah. Sarah, I need you to have a good long look at yourself. Her Instagram handle is actually Stupid Thoughts with Sarah. So Well, you've smashed it. <laughs> they exhibit what is potentially the greatest sexual dimorphism of any mammal, as the males are six times heavier than the females. So females are more like polar bear weight, I guess, and the males are six <laughs> just, times just, <laughs> just, <laughs> just polar bear weight. It's all relative. Males get to this gargantuan size to fight over the right to mate. Males fight to become the beach master, ruling over a stretch of beach and all the females that it contains so that they can mate with them all. They will stay on a beach throughout the breeding season, which can sometimes mean more than three months without eating food and living off their blubber reserves. Fights can look absolutely brutal and involve rearing up face to face and slamming their weight into each other and attacking each other's necks with their canine teeth. This can result in some pretty severe wounds, but they're rarely fatal as the attacks between two males are ritualized to take place on only the blubbery areas of their neck. But Roddy Short, last time I checked, your neck wasn't particularly blubbery. So how many elephant seals are too many elephant seals? Well, first of all, thanks, Jack. I've been taking care of <laughs> Also, Sarah, great suggestion, but Jesus Christ. <laughs> they are colossal. I mean, I knew they were big. But when I started researching and pulling up the facts and figures, they are monstrous creatures. But they're wrapped in blubber. And I think here's a here's a thing about the depends on whether you you know whether you wanted to uh, get the esteem that comes with fighting a male one or not. But the thing one of the things that <laughs> stuck out to me was that if you fought them at the end of the breeding season, they've spent three months on the beach without food fighting to become the beach masters so then there's only one elephant seal i ever want to fight and have to fight and that is the beach master so we this is the first time there is an identified individual given the animal's biology that is like it's that or bust yeah. like it's beach master or have you even fought an elephant seal if you've not beaten the beach master exactly this is a pokemon gym situation i'm just going to knock out a couple of the females on my way to the beach master <laughs> yeah. and then you know yeah okay when's the breeding season it's breeding season on the subantarctic islands is from september to november okay and i've got a note as well saying that the males arrive beforehand to start fighting yeah over the beaches yeah <clears throat> But I feel like you want to get them at the end of the breeding season. Oh, yeah. I'm not going in. I'm not a first round entry into this. I'm waiting for them to... You don't want to haul them to haul up on the beach of like four tons of prime condition. Exactly. No, this is very much... You know, this is like saying I'm going to fight Mike Tyson after he's been in a car crash or something. Yeah. You know, it's like that's that's how we're engineering this situation. Yeah. <laughs> a car crash that lasted three months. Yeah. Right. What state am I in in November? <laughs> <laughs> this has been recorded in October. 
I've got a month to get into enough shape <laughs> to take on a four-ton male beachmaster elephant seal. I have been seeing a lot of those targeted ads, you know, like join our six-week program. So this is going to put a six-week Instagram training program to the test in a way no other advertising campaign or probably even the marketing agency would allow. Can you imagine if you went to a personal trainer, signed up at a gym, and they always go, you know, what's your goals? What do you want to get out of this? And you go, I want to be the South Georgia Beachmaster 2022. (laughs) You go, well, in six weeks, I'm fighting an elephant seal. Yeah. Cool, man. <laughs> yeah. Cool. We all set our own goals, man. Yeah. What's what what sort of terrain? So if you want to fight them, you want to fight them on the beaches. <laughs> I have to be the beach. There's no. Okay. No, I can't. This so is we're beach. not even changing the terrain. You're going to have to just get. Well, let's not be too hasty. <laughs> or can any beach count? Does Malibu count? Because <laughs> like, they're going to sweat a lot in Malibu. Oh, that's a, invite the ruling beachmaster. Yeah. Taunt them. Taunt them. Yeah. Send them videos of me training. <laughs> <laughs> Harass them. Like like when UFC fighters are going up to a fight or like boxers and yeah. now that they've got social media, they're tagging each other in posts. They're like, you'll never, yeah. you know, and all the rest. Right. So it's not just a six week training campaign yeah. with some poor godforsaken <laughs> person. Yeah, exactly. There's also going to be a six-week social media insult campaign. Okay. You know. Maybe you could, I mean, in the, you could be taking pictures. If you decide you want to take them off their beach mm. and bring them to a more favourable beach, mm. you could just get some, like, cardboard or blow-up female elephant seals and just, like, take pictures oh. and be like, look at my look at my elephant seals. And then he's like, hang on. You could, you could like, have more if you laid more. You know, like, in the Second World War yeah. when... Uh, armies would build cardboard air bases yep. out of wood and things like that yep. to distract the enemy yep. or to make them attack the wrong places. Yep. You could make an entire beach full of wooden female elephant seals, tag the beachmaster in it, and he's like, I-, I need that beach as well. I know what we need. We need a social media campaign on our side, right? We're going to yep. either Dubai or Ibiza. We need to go where all the influencers are. Yeah. Okay, yep. so that... All the tagging is going to escalate. It's all the hashtag follow this. It's going to build into a level of momentum that yeah. the Beachmaster cannot possibly ignore. Uh-huh. A lot of people in bikinis, a lot of people looking good. It's going to look, it's going to be like, I need to be king of that beach. He's checking Instagram from the sub-Antarctic island of South Georgia, being like, I could do with a bit of sun. Yeah, exactly. I need to be king. That's the beach I need to be king of. Yeah. It then means that not only has he done three months... Without feeding. Without feeding. He's then swimming yeah. up to, which is going to be further? Ibiza. Ibiza, yeah. <laughs> okay. Right, so I'm going to fight the South Georgia Beachmaster <laughs> in November, end of November 2022, Ibiza. <laughs> That's quite the event to go to if you're like, you know, just down there for a party in week. Exactly, yes. I'm going to get, I, I was about to say I might try and rope in a couple stag do's to help me out, but no. I don't know. It's, uh, there's no, it's no there's, help. we... We're being tactical, uh-huh. but we're being honourable. Okay, yeah. You know. well, well, I mean, so you say you're going to be honourable. He's going to turn up and realise that they're all wooden females and be absolutely raging. That's a very insulting way to discuss the people <laughs> who go to Ibiza. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to take it back, though. <laughs> I'm just thinking, what, what else have you got to your advantage? I'm thinking, you know, like, I'm thinking, how did they prepare the beaches for the D-Day landings? You've got 
like parasols you've got deck chairs can you dig yourself into some trenches can you really like you know the beach master is one of the most formidable foes you've ever fought yeah you need to do as much groundwork yeah. as you can to be ready for the arrival of the beach master right yes uh rows on rows of anti-tank parasols yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like sticking up like the dragon's teeth yeah that stop the amphibious vehicles yeah exactly so we've got anti-tank parasols which i think in the venn diagram of military installations and beach gear has not truly been looked at yet as a business venture anti-tank parasols a wall of deck chairs uh-huh this is like the kind of game of thrones-esque battle of helms deep type situation yeah it's you sort know, of vibe. bunkering ourselves in do they have like I bet they've got have they got good hearing like can we turn the music right up in Ibiza can we I don't know lights well they do they have that big elephant like nose that gives them their name and they use that they reckon in the breeding season they think the size and shape of it increases the volume of their roar when they're posturing to other males okay so they like loud noises whether they like Ibiza trance I'm not quite (laughs) sure Okay. But if you turn it up loud enough that he can't be heard over it... Then now his roar's out of the picture. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So very loud trance music, <laughs> anti-tank parasols. A wall of deck chairs. A wall of deck chairs. What else have you got? He's on a three-month fast. Yeah. I've done a training program. <laughs> I've had a kale smoothie that morning. <laughs> um, What's the final... Because he swings at me. How do I... Yeah, so he's going to rear up. He's probably not going to be far off your size. It probably will be your size. He's going to rear up like they do, and they attack by basically biting with their canines as they swing in. I actually don't think there's any way I can beat him. Yeah. What I can do is attempt <laughs> to out-harem him. <laughs> Ooh. If I get enough influencers... Yeah. Have you seen, like, a big club day? He arrives, yeah. right, anti-tank parasols, yeah. wall of uh, deck chairs, what was the other one? Trance music pumped yeah. up. I've also set up, like, a DJ booth. Okay. Right? I'm behind the mic. DJ Roddy. Because, yes, I, uh, having done this podcast, have experience behind the mic, and I'm going to say more than any elephant seal does on earth. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Somewhere I'm waiting, in... I'm waiting for the angry DM from the elephant seal that listens to this podcast. <laughs> Somewhere in all of this, uh-huh. basically, I'm whipping the crowd up into a frenzy. Yeah. He arrives. There's such a... And it's just like everyone is on... Your side. My side, basically. And he sees a true beach master. Oh. I'm handing out free drinks. I've put on canapes. <laughs> I've got go-go dancers. There's Catherine wheels going off. Free champagne for everyone. I've financially ruining myself <laughs> in this fight. But I'm that's it. I'm putting on the best club night Ibiza has ever seen. The biggest beach party the island's ever known. I've flown in. I've pulled every favor I have to hand. Yeah. Which in my phone book isn't really gonna help. <laughs> but basically I'm putting on the biggest club night Ibiza's ever known. Yeah. So when this exhausted beachmaster arrives from uh, South Georgia, yeah. he can only look at me and just turn back into the sea and just think that's a true beachmaster and swim back to South Georgia. That's a true beachmaster. Oh, you can stay for a drink. <laughs> I'm a gracious host, but that is how I defeat the South Georgia beachmaster. 
This question comes to us from Jenny Robertson, and she asks, you've been charged with murder. Your Ooh. animal lawyer is who stands between you and a life sentence. What animal are they? Oh, what a question, Jenny. Inspired. Excellent. What animal do I want to basically bet my life on? Is the prosecution an animal or just our defence? I think even if the prosecution is an animal, we're not going to know what animal that is. Ah, so very good. We sh- I don't think we should take that into consideration. Yep, fine. Regardless, motion pass. Whether it's the court of animals, yeah, <laughs> or the court of men, yeah, <laughs> we choose our animal regardless. Okay. So qualities of a good lawyer. Yep. Good communication. Yes. Persuasive. Yes. Sharp dressed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cheap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, Willing to look the other way. (laughs) Trustworthy with secrets. (laughs) Has multiple phone numbers for different people. Multiple phones. Yeah. Okay, right, so we've been charged with murder. I think the answer might depend whether we've done the murder or not. I think I'd want a different animal if I'm guilty and want to try and get off than if I'm, like, innocent. If I'm innocent, I'm like, I've got nothing to fear. I want something that's going to curry favour with the jury. I want like a red panda. Okay, that it, is... Wow. Because, All right, because, take me through that. Well, because I'm innocent and I want everybody to empathise with me and I want a, like... You want your lawyer to I reflect, my, yeah, mirror and amplify it, Exactly. That I want my lawyer to, to be... We're all singing off the same hymn sheet. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, the lawyer's adorable. Yeah. Butter wouldn't melt in the lawyer's mouth. Yeah. And I want that to transfer over to me. I'm completely innocent. Okay. If I'm guilty, I can't drag a red panda through this. No, this is getting minced. Put through the grinder. But if I'm guilty. They're going to have vultures. I want an animal that's more conniving. Right. An animal that's smarter. An animal that's going to get me off the hook by any means necessary. Yep. Red Panda's not going to do that. No, not in the slightest. So if I'm innocent of committing the murder that I've been charged with, I want something like a Red Panda. Yeah. Or other cute, wholesome creature. Yak. (laughs) Just like a yak. (laughs) If I'm guilty... Yeah. I don't want to say crow again, because we say crow all the time. Yeah. But a crow. (laughs) Um, But something like... Something that's smart, but in a way that... What are the top three conniving animals? Top three conniving animals. Well, foxes have a reputation for being sly and cunning and things like yeah. that. I don't know whether that's... They're smart. Big ginger theme going Big on ginger here theme. with that these true. animals and your lawyers. <laughs> you just want your lawyer and you to... <laughs> I'll also have a red squirrel and a red kite. Yeah. <laughs> no, they say foxes are conniving, but they're tricksy foxes, aren't they? Yes. I tell you what. A phrase that is in my head before, I've tweeted it, I'm sure I've mentioned it on the show before, is attack life like a stoat. Like be more <laughs> like be more stoat is okay. a motto that we should live by yep. for their like relentless enthusiasm and determination to get through life. Yeah. Like in terms of the size of prey that they take on, like no problem is too big. You know, I think a stoat is appearing on my TV, being like, "No case is too big. Yeah, <laughs> I can get you off the hook." Yeah. <laughs> so, I think a stoat 
if I'm guilty and I'm like, shit, I'm going down forever here. Yeah. I think a stoic is going to get the bit between its teeth and fight to get me off the hook or reduce that sentence as much as possible. Better call stoked. Better call stoked. Right, okay. So you've got red panda or better call stoked. Uh-huh. I bought into your red panda analogy. Yep. Um, and then when we were thinking of, okay, what if I have done it and I need to get off? What is the anti-red panda? Okay. The yin to the red panda's yang. Uh-huh. And I came out at raccoon. Uh, raccoon would be a good one. Which lawyer. is literally... Mm. I mean, they are same, same, but different. Yeah. Yeah. Raccoon is a good one. They've got tricksy be- little fingers. Yeah. They're skulking around. They've got great informants. They know what's <laughs> happening at street level. You know, a raccoon knows what's happening in every alley yeah. in the neighborhood. Yeah. It's got a couple crows working for it. It's yeah. got some rats it keeps on the payroll. They're like, hey, boss, <laughs> when are you going to chuck me a bone? Yeah. Yeah, the prosecution is like, you know, painting their client as being picture perfect. Prosecution's a penguin. Yeah. Nice. Uh, like yeah. just generic suit. <laughs> yeah. You know, and they're, they're painting their client or whatever to be picture perfect. And the raccoon's like, hey, but what about this you threw away in your bin last Tuesday? Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's like some rec- receipt to some, you know, really seedy yeah. <laughs> organization. Exactly. It is completely plugged into the underworld. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So our legal team. <laughs> and now, if we were in a position of hiring a whole legal team, we've got the suite, okay? Yeah. We've got a red panda. Mm-hmm. For if you're purely innocent of what you've been accused of. Oh, no, I'm thinking it's like a Wilson Fisk type situation where whether we're innocent or guilty doesn't matter. We now just have the resources to hire five lawyers. Oh, so it's like oh, okay. the legal Avengers. They just like tag in. Exactly. So the red panda is mm. there to step up and buy favour, curry favour, empathise with the jury. Mm-hmm. That's who presents, you know, he's a good family man. He does charity work yeah. and all the rest. Then you've got the stoat to just relentlessly beat badger and bludgeon the opposition. <laughs> I case. think that, that like just, yeah, just goes for the throat on any any potential little crumb of uh, weakness in the prosecution's argument the stoat just goes for it yeah and then finish it all off where if they've got any dirt or if their closing argument needs any bit of leverage out of them you know you bring in the raccoon (laughs) who's just had his team of rats go out and sniff out some dirt on the streets to come back and be like hey boss look at this (laughs) perfect Hello, listener. We're fast approaching the end of the series now, but of course there's always time for me to pop up and tell you how grateful we are for your support. Thank you to everyone for their reviews, except the person who said that no species of bird would make it into their top 50 animals. That sort of avian slander ain't gonna fly in my outro section, my friend. We'll be back for our final episode of the series next Tuesday with a couple of segments that we found locked away in our How Many Geese vault. We'll see you then.